Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman and I am a health journalist, which means I spend my life asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're asking, should we talk about the harm that lockdowns have done to children? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. In the studio, we are joined by our brilliant columnist, Dr. Ellie Cannon, GP, writer and general all-round broadcast legend. Thank you for joining us, Ellie. It's lovely to be here. Just to recap for the Mm. listeners, as if anyone could fail to forget, it was on March the 20th, 2020, that schools closed Mm. due to the pandemic. Just weeks before, we had been writing information pieces, question and answer pieces, telling people that, in fact, schools weren't going to close and that all the evidence suggested that if the schools close, as anxious as people might feel about that, that it could make the situation worse, that it would drive down infections slightly and that then when everything went back to normal, infections would be even worse than before as people started mixing and that people had less immunity, etc. And what little mm. evidence there was didn't, didn't support the ideas of closing schools. Mm. Then there was an apparent U-turn, a change of heart. There was terrifying figures that came from uh, Imperial College suggesting hundreds of thousands of deaths and schools were closed. And now things have returned to normal, but they haven't in many Mm. ways. Kids have been faced with a real stack of problems. There was the mysterious outbreak of hepatitis, the liver inflammation condition. Twelve children in the UK ended up needing liver transplant Mm. as, as a result of this. We've had an ongoing problem with respiratory, correct me how I'm pronouncing this right, respiratory syncytial... Syncytial. RSV, we all call it RSV. Hospital services have been overwhelmed with children again this year with RSV. To add to that, we've got children with strep A infections, a bacterial infection, strep throat, that can turn very nasty and seems to be... I mean, there's been 19 deaths of children so far. Although children do die from this infection every year, we're seeing an earlier and more concentrated round of infections. And, and of course, this is once again linked to lack of immunity. That's not to mention the surge in mental health problems in children. I read one statistic that suggested there'd been an 81% increase in the number of referrals to child and adolescent mental health services, a fourfold increase in demand for eating disorder treatments in the period directly following the end of lockdowns. So I think it's time that we looked on balance at the situation Doctors like you, Ellie, were warning Mm. quite far back that the closure of schools could have and was having a disastrous impact. What were you seeing back then? What was worrying you back then? Well, I think right at the outset, as you've described, if we sort of take our minds back to those awful early days in March 2020, 
the idea of school closures, everybody kept talking about something called flattening the curve. So basically that we would reduce the number of infections in a very short term period, spread it out in order that hospitals could cope and the medical services available could cope. And we wouldn't have this swell that we did end up having, but also that we'd all seen in Italy. And that was the idea that it was going to be this very short term short-lived approach, March 2020, mm. April 2020. I lived through this with, with two children in school, and this is what we said to our children, and everybody said this to their kids. It will be it will be sort of three to six weeks. It's very unusual. And obviously, living in 2020, we all had, well, not we all had, that's actually wrong, but there were online facilities for some children, although we know now actually in underprivileged families, of course, they, they weren't able to have online school. So it was supposed to be a short-term situation. And in that case, if it was short-term, the benefits of that to reduce the virus numbers would have been worth the small risk because the small risk of having children not in school for three or six weeks are really small. They're very negligible. But then once we got to a situation where we had prolonged school closures, then the risks of not being at school started to outweigh any benefits very, very quickly. So even May, June, July 2020, where children who, for example, have special needs or special therapy needs at school, like physiotherapy or occupational therapy, which they might have in their special school, wasn't happening. All children need interaction. That wasn't happening. Children weren't doing any exercise. If you remember, playgrounds were also taped up. They weren't getting their walk to school, their walk home, their social interaction. So even as far back as June, July 2020, it was already becoming clear, particularly to GPs and paediatricians who deal in the holistic health of children, like their 360 health, everything, you know, from their social setup to their psychological health, to what food is on the table, to where they sleep. It was very clear from us that once we'd closed schools for two or three months, we were actually damaging children. Mm, but it just carried on and on, didn't it? It did just carry on and on. And I think it's really important to highlight something that you just highlighted in your introduction, which is really how long this went on. And Actually, if you look now at the history, and it's very easy for all of us to forget what happened in the pandemic, probably because we all want to and need to forget. But actually, children were affected by school closures for the better part of two years, because even though schools were closed formally from that original period and then that second period in January 2021, in fact, children were suffering repeated personal school closure, if you like. They were suffering repeated personal sort of quarantines because of the way testing and tracing was done and because of the way children were put into isolation or, as I choose to call it, imprisonment at that time. So actually, there were some children who had their education and their school life disrupted for two years. And, I mean, the question has to be asked, to what benefit? I mean, we knew 
from the outset that mm. COVID posed an extremely low risk to young people. And not only the low risk to young people, but also they were seen very early on as um, vectors of disease and really made out to be sort of the lowest class person in society who had to protect everybody else around them. And actually, that was also never proven to be the case. There were very good transmission studies done of households that showed that actually children were not taking COVID home to their parents. In fact, it was often the other way around. And there are still cases anecdotally now on social media where children are being asked to wear masks during performances, possibly not necessarily in Mm. this country, possibly in America, whereas the adults sit in the audience of a school performance without a mask on. So it's all very, very strange. But going back to what we were talking about, the risk that COVID poses to children, Mm. I mean, what we've seen instead is, is, I think the term that people are using now is an immunity debt that there's actually been this quite damaging health situation that has exposed children to all these multiple infections that seems to be having a disastrous effect on, on their health. Well, on average, a young child will have 10 infections a year, so 10 viruses, the sort of cough, cold, sore throat thing that all parents will be familiar with that we've all had as children. And obviously with school closures, with social isolation and with masks, that was much reduced in the last couple of years. And so children are susceptible to those viruses, which is absolutely fine, except the problem is they're all susceptible all at once, having had a clear couple of years, and they're also susceptible to sort of lots of different ones at the same time. And that has led to issues now. So we've had a very quiet two years in terms of Group A strep, and now... We're having lots of children, unfortunately, get group A strep all at once, combined with that RSV, which causes the baby infection bronchiolitis. That, unfortunately, makes children then susceptible to secondary infections like group A strep. So you end up with this sort of snowball effect. And I think the concept of immunity debt is sort of relatively controversial and it's become quite polarised amongst paediatricians and child health experts. But the fact of the matter is kids have not had all of these infections in the last couple of years and now we're seeing a massive swell of them. And this is just one of a plethora of risks from Mm. school closures. But where do we go from here, would you say? Well, I think what's important is for parents and adults and government to understand now that school closure is not an option. Well, look, it's a conversation that is, I wouldn't say it's dividing doctors, but Mm. there is certainly another side to this. And I think we should hear from one of those scientists now. Joining us now is Professor Stephen Griffin, a virologist at the University of Leeds and member of Independent Sage, a science advice group. Professor Griffin, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. You have broadly supported throughout the pandemic the closure of schools. I'd just like to ask you why that is. Well, I think it's it's not quite as black and white as that because, you know, obviously closing schools is an extreme measure. We also know that the schools weren't completely closed as well, and primary schools in particular weren't closed for as long as people think. The fact is that if you're in a position where things get really, really bad and you've done nothing to prevent them getting very bad, then you do have to take extreme measures such as isolating and homeschooling and and things like that to prevent transmission. 
The point is that we've had several summers, we've had several years now to try and make schools much safer places that we needn't have to take such extreme measures. So in terms of saying that I supported the closures early 2020 and then sort of you know, January 2021, when of course Alpha hit, then yes, that was the right thing to do because we didn't have vaccines and we didn't know what was going to happen with either the, the original outbreak or, or with the Alpha strain in children. You know, obviously it's not black and white and inequality is a major problem that the pandemic has exposed. And of course, children from poorer families and less well-off families suffered much more disproportionately than others. So you say that sort of primary schools weren't as close for as long, as long as people say. But in effect, because of the way that we quarantined children who were contacts of COVID, we quarantined cold classes, we quarantined bubbles, and also the fact that actually very few vulnerable children ever took up their school places or key worker children took up their school places. In fact, schools were closed really for individual children for a lot longer than we talk about. No, that's true. I mean, the situation for vulnerable children is is different. There's disproportionate effects on different groups of children, and that, I, I completely agree with that. So again, I think it comes back to, it's, it's not just a question of closing. And you refer to bubbles, I completely agree. The bubbles are a good idea in principle, but the bubbles should really have been just close contact groups. But the problem is that we didn't do very much about either getting you know, larger spaces to teach children in or increasing staffing so that you could reduce the numbers of, of children. And I think the major problems came with when the bubbles were like entire year groups, for example. And, and that is crazy. That, that's never going to work. And that doesn't make sense epidemiologically either. So I think that you know, there were major problems, not necessarily with the ideas, but perhaps the implementation of these plans I think that still the point stands that it's very clear that once schools were were back more in 2021 and 2022, we've seen more transmission and more long COVID and more severe disease in younger people. That's a fact. That's that's undeniable. But I also would say that I think I'm right in that after all the school disruptions, that there's actually more student absences and staff absences since then than than was actually happened with the bubble. So. It's it's a really difficult one to pick apart, Ellie. I completely agree. But it's I think the problem is that there are lots of principles and ideas and, and lock down this or shut this or bubbles this and that. But the actual implementation really struggled to make good on those those ideas, I think. Something you mentioned was that when uh, children started mixing again, that, that we saw a rise in COVID and severe COVID cases in children. But I think that it has remained that children are extremely at low risk. But what we have also seen is reports of quite alarming rise in, in mental health problems that child mental health experts say is linked to the disruption that's been caused to education. We've seen a rise in severe RSV. We've got the stress. A outbreak at the moment, the unusual hepatitis outbreak in the summer. There has been some considerable harms that have been stored up due to the lockdowns. On balance, do you think that the benefits were worth it? So yes, you're right. Compared to adults, children are at much lower risk than severe severe disease. That's absolutely right and true. We know that. But it's probably the wrong comparison, I'm afraid, because we know that children don't tend to die anywhere near as often as adults anyway. So for something to cause an undue number of childhood deaths, particularly an infectious cause of childhood deaths, which COVID is, it's probably the highest infectious cause of death, if I believe, in the UK, and certainly across the planet. 
then that is the comparison you should be considering. And the fact that that's a vaccine-preventable disease is something that I think we could have done more about. And I think that as well, if you see that the growing immunity in children, which unfortunately has mainly been a result of, of previous infection, has also led, we, we think, to a decrease in things like PIMS-TS or MIS-C, whichever you want to call it. You indicate that you feel that it was worth it because of the risk that COVID poses to children. And I'm just having a look at the ONS data on this. So between uh, Jan 2020 and May 2021, pre-vaccination of children, in the 15 to 19-year-old age group, there was 22 deaths. In the 10 to 14, there was nine. In five to nine-year-olds, three I mean, we're in the single digits at this point. You're a virologist. We've got things like severe flu happening at the moment, the RSV outbreak and strep A. Obviously, these things we we know every year will kill some children, sadly. But the problem that we've got at the moment is that health services are saying they are overwhelmed with these cases and it's all concentrated. And the epidemiology has even been changed. It's not being seen at the normal times, etc. Just on balance... Has that been worth it? Right. So this, you're asking about different things there, okay? So let me take that one at a time. So yeah, you're right. In, in 2020, early 21, the numbers were lower, but they're much higher during 2021 and 2022 because there is more mixing. Omicron caused predominantly way more infections. And the fact is that if you take a low percentage risk and you increase the numbers of those low percentage risks occurring, then you will see it. And we started to see that. And there have been over 100 children dying, sadly, with COVID on their death certificate in the UK over the past years. Okay, And that, unfortunately, is a much higher cause of infant death than flu or RSV. Okay. Influenza deaths tend to be not directly caused by the virus. Now, I'm not someone that would split hairs over that because it's still a clinical impact. It's still a bed being filled, okay? But you can't ignore the fact that when COVID was spreading in younger people, it did cause harm. And of course, long COVID is something that isn't very often factored into young children, but it is a very real problem. So there are real issues there in that that is being overlooked and it's well over 100,000 children living with something for more than three or six months, I believe. So I think, though, if I can interrupt about that, Professor Griffin, certainly in terms of the long COVID and in talks that I've had with paediatricians about that, in fact, what's interesting when you look at the data on long COVID is many children who actually never had a clinical diagnosis of COVID or a virological diagnosis of COVID also exhibit long COVID symptoms. So there are certainly questions in childhood whether or not actually some long COVID symptoms are actually long pandemic and long associated with restrictions as opposed to the virus. That's interesting. Right. I mean, I don't I don't think that you can fake some of the immunological or neurological aspects of that. I, I, I think oh, there gosh. are mental I, well, problems. I, I, I sorry, don't think anyone sorry. said fake. I, I, did, I didn't say fake. Sorry, sorry. That's, something, okay. that's something medically that we talk about yeah. um, when we talk about somatizing. So mm-hmm. in the same way that nobody fakes having a stomachache when they're incredibly anxious, sure. the stomachache doesn't come from your digestive system. It comes from your brain. And as a GP, I'm very aware aware that a lot of physical symptoms in in some people do actually come from psychological origin and also if 
children oh, are not. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean if, to say if that. If children are not that. exercising yeah. and not being educated and not with their peers, I suppose there is a danger. And obviously, I'm a generalist, being a GP, but I suppose there is a danger always with medicine when we look at siloed risks. And what I feel as a GP who looks at people's health really holistically across the board, and health being a sort of makeup of your mental health, your social life, your education, your prospects in life, your prognosis, your wealth. There was a danger, wasn't there, that we had so many experts talking about the virus and a viral risk that we didn't actually look broadly enough, did we? No, I, I completely agree, Annie. And, and that, again, I think relates to the sort of underlying inequalities and things, which, you know, isn't something that I'm an expert on. But certainly it's exposed the pandemic. It's exposed how some families struggle so badly. And, and we're now seeing that again with the cost of living and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I think the balance of wealth in our country was very much exposed and the brittleness of some of our infrastructure has been very much exposed. I, I completely agree. But I would say in terms of some of the studies that I think you're probably referring to, that, that there is an issue around the, the testing because a lot of childhood infections are asymptomatic, etc. And there is also a lot of good evidence coming out of different US studies that actually self-reporting is, is a pretty good indicator of incidence of long COVID, you know, that's been immunologically verified. And that's mainly in adults, but I can't see why it wouldn't be the case in, in children as well. But I completely agree that there will, of course, be stress-related and, and psychological-related issues going forwards. I know people that have that problem, uh, young children, myself. So, yeah, I'm not saying that it's, it's all that. But I think that most people that we're talking about here who have had the problems long term tend to have a long COVID issue, I think, is, is my understanding. Professor Griffin, going forwards, do you think that school closures could be considered as, as a mitigation measure for other kinds of infections? Do you think that there's been a precedent set that it's a possibility? I think lockdown should never be a strategy, Barney. I really do. I think that lockdown should always be an extreme reaction. The lockdown in the first instance, I think, was justified in general. I don't think closing schools is something you'd ideally want to do. I think what you want to do is, knowing what we know about how these viruses spread, is to make them safer in the longer term. And that means an investment. It means an infrastructural change. I think you can see what other countries are doing. They're building in good ventilation and filtration systems into public spaces. We've started doing some of that in schools. It's not enough. I think lockdowns are an extreme reaction to when a situation gets bad. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the response in the UK is, is once we have something under control like COVID, we kind of relax too soon and it comes back again. We've seen this cyclical rebound of the virus time and time again, and just been incredibly damaging. What we've not done is said, right, we've got this under control. Let's use the time. Let's fix the roof while the sun is shining. Let's implement all these things. Let's make sure that we can make the building safe for the kids and sort out the staffing levels and all that sort of stuff. But no, we haven't. And I think this speaks very clearly to, to what you're saying about other diseases. So, you know, influenza disappeared because of the mitigations that we put in place, because it's a less infectious virus and it spreads predominantly through a droplet route rather than an aerosol route. RSV never left us. Various other things like rhinoviruses and things didn't really leave us at all. So the fact is, it's not just a question of is it the virus, is it the general aspects of things, as Ellie rightly says. I think it's the response should have been, let's put the emergency measures in and let's build in mitigations and protections so that we don't get stuck in this. And I'm referring to schools here. I'm talking about the whole country as in general. 
is either going one way or the other just doesn't help. You know, completely locking everything down is damaging. Of course it is. That's why you should only ever have to do it once. We didn't end up having to do it once, unfortunately. And it's the same with schools. Schools closures were done as an emergency measure. Do you remember the ridiculousness of coming back for that single day in January 21? I mean, people have predicted these problems and it just wasn't acted upon. So I, I really think that when we look back at this, the lessons we need to learn are that in general, we can do much better. I remember what you said a minute ago, you know, we know sadly some children will die of X, Y, and Z. Well, we can do better than that. We could reduce the risks that are presented to our younger population across the board. Unfortunately, it's down to bean counting and, and it hasn't happened recently. So I think that we, we really need to make improvements and not be satisfied with the status quo. Part of the problems that we're seeing at the moment with what people are terming this immunity debt, which is not a correct term, I have to, have to say, are because we've tried to just pretend that everything's gone back to 2019 and not done anything to prepare from, for what we knew would happen when everything sort of went back to full-on mixing and, and interacting. And you go back to saying that the immunity debt theory is not correct. Do you want to just explain? What many people think about is the idea that, you know, if you have a seasonal wave of infections, then you see susceptible people infected at roughly the same numbers every year and so on. And it's usually younger children because they're entering schools. Most of them won't get severely unwell. Some will. And so that seasonality pattern is restored. And we have our annual flu waves. We have sometimes several waves of RSV in a year, sometimes several waves of other viruses as well, because they follow a different pattern across the globe. Now, it's not true that we haven't had RSV, by the way. We've had that. We've had adenoviruses. We've had rhinovirus and metonymoviruses and, and all the rest of it, all these viruses that many people won't have really thought about. We have had those in 21, but things like flu certainly is hitting us again for the first time. And there's a larger susceptible pool of individuals that are going to get it because we haven't really bothered with our flu vaccines. And it's the case then that you have a large susceptible pool, so you have more infections and a bit like Omicron with COVID, for a larger number of infections for a small risk, you're going to see more severe disease. The other aspect to it is that, well, there's two aspects to it. One is that, that what you do is you know this is going to happen, so you roll your vaccines out sooner and you push them. Okay, because, you know, one thing that flu infections predispose you to is a severe group A strep infection, for example. Um, we could vaccinate for chickenpox, for example, but we don't do that. Chickenpox is a well-known precursor to invasive group A strep. I'm not saying these things are directly causally linked, but what I'm saying is that we could have perhaps foreseen this, and I'm sure many people did foresee this, and we perhaps could have done that a lot better. Now, the flip side of this immunity debt is the idea that many people still are saying about sort of the individual case severity. So the fact that if you're infected with flu now, you're more likely to be ill than you were two years ago, for example. And that's not true. This is, this is a bit of a twisted version of the hygiene hypothesis, which has been, been debunked for decades. Your immune system doesn't need to be trained by other infections to attack another infection. It, it's something that we have inherent there. Our, our second response is much better, and that's what we call immunity but you are already pre-programmed with the right weapons to attack influenza, for example. It's much better to have your secondary forces going in there if you've been vaccinated. But just because you didn't have flu doesn't mean you can't fight off adenovirus, for example. So this idea that you have to train your muscles up, your immunological muscles up, I'm afraid is wrong. And in actual fact, what environmental bugs teach our immune system is actually what not to respond to, something called peripheral tolerance, so for example, the bugs in our guts and things like that. So 
this idea that because kids weren't unwell with virus X for the last two years, that they're going to get a more severe form of virus Y and Z is frankly completely immunologically wrong. So it's, it's a real problem. What we're looking at really is the epidemiological phenomenon of the increase, what you might call an immunity gap, I suppose. So increased numbers of susceptibles. So really what we need to understand is that we know we can do something about these respiratory viruses. What we need to understand is why we're not doing it. You know, where we have vaccines, why don't we use them more, for example? And where we have the capacity to put in a HEPA filter or a Causey Rosenthal box, why aren't we doing that more? We need to use vaccines more. We need to understand that individual risk is not the only thing we should consider. And that's sometimes, you know, when you refer to the, the individual risk of of children getting sick from COVID, for example, yes, you're absolutely right. It's it's very tiny. But as a population, they need to look out for on a population scale the damage that this does. Even if it's not putting people in hospital, it's costing us in terms of the economy. With COVID, it's causing long COVID. And and we just don't need to deal with this in the way that we do. We can do much better, is my view. Professor Stephen Griffin, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. Thanks a lot, Barney. Thanks, Ellie. It's interesting that he was suggesting that, in fact, all these infections that we're seeing, all these other things Mm. that we're seeing are not unexpected and really more could have been done to prevent these waves of, say, flu, severe flu, RSV, etc. What do you say to that? Well, he still rightly said that we have an immunity gap. So we don't normally have this level of influenza A and this level of group A strep. But he's saying we we knew we were going to have that. Yes, we did know we were going to have it, but it is a result of school closures. From my understanding, and I don't have the figures, in fact, the uptake of flu vaccination, certainly amongst adults, has so far been very good this year. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think I think there's sort of like there's a lot of different things there. And I think what's interesting is he does talk about mitigation measures going forward, but doesn't seem to support schools ever, ever closing again. Mm, Yeah. Well, next on the line, we have someone who has long said that schools never should have closed. Molly Kingsley, parent and co-founder of Pressure Group, Us For Them. Molly, thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us. I know that you and your group, Us For Them, have almost from the get-go campaigned against school closures and mitigating factors like mask wearing in schools. What inspired that? Why were you so against the school closures? Yeah, I mean, I guess just intuitively as parents um, and kind of living through it, we felt that school closures in particular were a really damaging intervention and I think that's because we saw the impact in those early days so you know back in March and April 2020 which was just before we founded us for them we saw the impact on our own kids and it's really sad and gives us no joy at all to see it play out on a national scale taking children out of a social setting keeping them behind closed doors, stopping them playing, of course, right at the beginning, of course, playgrounds were closed and it was all very extreme, wasn't it? And then, of course, later putting them in front of computers, asking them to learn in front of screens and not teachers, like none of these things as a parent seemed like a healthy way for children to live. 
People argue that certainly in the early days of the pandemic, the benefits of, of taking children out and isolating them and, and keeping them away from each other and the, you know, removing the risk of infection was worth these potential disruptions. Do you not think that perhaps shielding them from COVID, at least until vaccination was available, might have been worth it? Not for this virus. I think the where that argument falls down is that COVID from the very beginning, really, as early as April 2020, it was known that COVID is a very discriminatory virus. So, you know, not disputing at all that it is a serious illness, but it is overwhelmingly a serious illness for the elderly and the frail. You know, it's not to say children are at no risk from COVID, but they are at minimal risk. And we knew that very early on. And weighted against that, we knew that the harm from lockdown and in particular from school closures was immense. I mean, more children died behind closed doors as a result of child abuse than were killed directly by COVID. And I I think it's very stark when you look at it like that. Molly, you've been very vocal and very powerful with us for them about getting the voice of children heard. And how do you feel now that sort of evidence coming to light about the tsunami of mental illness in children and the tsunami of sort of educational problems and sort of everything else when you were really sort of like struggling to get anybody to hear this side of the story as far back as May 2020? Yeah, I mean, you feel angry, I suppose, and just upset as well, because it wasn't only that we were struggling to be heard. We certainly were. But, you know, we were vilified and smeared and trolled. And we still are, actually, for taking this position. And that's what I don't understand, because I understand why it was a controversial position. I don't understand really where the hate came from, even at the time. You know, I think we were a bit taken aback by that, because as far as we were concerned, we were just standing up for kids. And that became this very polemic position that you know seemed to offend a lot of people but it's upsetting because all of these or maybe not all but so many of these harms particularly around mental health around developmental delays especially in young children and also around the increases in sort of obesity and overall deterioration of health all of these issues were not only predictable, but they were predicted. And, you know, it wasn't only us, Ellie. You know, there were you, there were people like Ellen Townsend. You know, there was a small but very vocal group of people that were just ignored. And it's frustrating and it's upsetting. Someone suggested to me that had the schools not closed, parents would have simply taken their children out or refused to send them back in January 2021. Do you think that that's perhaps a reason that the lockdowns of schools should have happened? That, that in fact, parents were so concerned anyway that they would have taken their children out? I don't buy that for January 21. I think parents were desperate to get children back into school by January 21. I mean, you wouldn't believe the messages that we were receiving then. I mean, it was very upsetting to think that children were going to live through it again. I do agree with that probably the summer of 2020 when the general population had been whipped up into this frenzy. And I totally accept that many parents were very worried. I mean, I think at the beginning we all were worried about COVID. And I think there's a whole separate issue about why the population was terrorised for a disease which, you know, as I said at the beginning, we we now know, thankfully, was not 
likely to hurt the vast majority of children you know that should have been a blessing that should have been something that we were happy about and that we could send our kids into school and, and that whole message just got twisted I think the irony, Molly, certainly as far as I see, is that, as you've rightly pointed out, COVID is an illness that affects, sadly, disproportionately a certain sector of society. And we saw that it was a disease of of the less privileged. And we see that, obviously, with, with obesity and we see that with lung cancer and we see that with the effects of drug addiction. And unfortunately, it's also the same group who were so vulnerable to the harms of school closures. So, in effect, the very group of people who we were supposedly trying to protect were, in fact, we were putting them also at risk of this added harm as well. And I think it's really only as child health experts or parents or people with that all-round broad view who can see that actually risks don't occur in isolation and we couldn't just look at the problems of COVID, the virus, without also looking at the other sort of problems children in these less privileged families were facing. I think that's exactly right. And I think you've mentioned such an important point because, you know, of course, school closures and lockdown, we know that they were hugely unequal in their impact. And in fact, I I believe that Dr. Jay Bathshira, one of, you know, prominent doctor in the States, is a professor of medicine at Stanford, and he has called school closures the single greatest inequity driving policy of all time. I mean, you know, he thinks they are that stark in their impact and you know I guess that's the sort of unspoken thing here that many children were fine so you know there were certainly children who were at home with parents who were engaged and able to look after them and who had access to gardens and countryside and you know of course they're the ones that will come out of this better and we know because the data is now revealing that actually far from closing the attainment gap the attainment gap has widened the inequality gap has widened for the first time as a result of lockdown. Unfortunately, there is just not the funding being put into catch-up. There's not the political will to mean that it's realistic at present to think that will be closed. And this this is really sad because, you know, how are these kids going to make up? How are we going to claw back this kind of chasm that opened during lockdown? Mm. Molly, something that you've been very critical about is mask wearing in schools and Ellie likewise. And I think the reason that you were talking on Sky, Ellie, you said it was all performative. Newsnight. Newsnight, that's it. It was because there was a suggestion that mitigation mask wearing in schools should be brought back in or was being brought back in as a kind of first measure, as a first step. And that, in fact, children are a sort of test ground, that that they introduce restrictions in schools first, which just seems bizarre to me, considering that children are the, the lowest risk from the virus. Is that something that you see, that there's this idea that you would restrict children before before others? I mean, I think that's the pattern we saw throughout the pandemic, wasn't it? it were, there was a disparity between what adults were being asked to do and what children were being asked to do. And we said, I mean, I, again, just as a parent, I just had a visceral reaction to masks. There is just something that looks wrong about a child wearing masks. So, you know, I probably would have taken a very extreme position so that, you know, even if they had worked, I would have been so deeply uncomfortable to see children, particularly young children, in masks. The fact that, as Ellie says, they were performative, I mean, we know that now. We have 
the studies that such as they were that have been released about the efficacy of masks in schools and the evidence that they were is incredibly thin in fact I think the evidence suggests that they didn't really do much if anything and against that we know that they were harmful I mean DRB themselves have a list of harms in their evidence papers that they they knew would accrue to children so I think the idea that you would ask children to wear masks when adults weren't is really shocking and particularly for seven or eight hours a day I mean there are so few adults who would wear a mask for seven or eight hours a day and I find it incredible that we would ask children to. Molly, I'd like to ask you a slightly more lighthearted question, which really interests me personally, which is what do you think would have happened in terms of school closures had the pandemic not happened in 2020 when we're digitally enabled, but perhaps if it had happened in 1990 when there was no such thing as the internet or online online learning? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that, because I've thought that often, and I think it's such a good example of just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. So I think schools would have stayed open. I mean, that that had been built into the pandemic plans as far as you can track them back. You know, this idea that we would mass close schools was never in the plans. At most, they envisaged very limited closures. And as you say, it's really only because we had access to remote learning and Zoom that people thought this was appropriate and I think what we learned during the pandemic and you know I know we've we've talked about this and you know my views on this but I think not only is remote learning not a good substitute for face-to-face teaching it's actually a dangerous one and I think part of what we're seeing now in terms particularly of the mental health stats bear out that we really shouldn't ask children to, to learn behind screens away from friends and also you know the whole concern about short-sightedness as well you know we don't really talk about that a lot but rates of short-sightedness particularly among primary school kids leapt mm. during the pandemic yeah just one of the unseen yes. harms mm, it is molly thanks so much for finding time to to join us today no not at all thank you so much for having me on it's lovely talking to you That's such an interesting point, isn't it? If this had happened 20 years ago, Mm. we would have just carried on. And that's so true. Knowing teachers, I am aware that some schools did actually just carry on. Mm. And certainly I know London schools that had quite a few children of key workers and vulnerable families, etc., who who had to come in, had completely full classes Mm. for large parts of when most classes were were closed. And and they just told all the children to come in and they bloody ignored it. Mm. So there were pockets of resistance, I think. There were pockets of resistance, but I think, you know, really early on, we saw creativity in a lot of other areas. So I remember, I don't know anything about sport, but I remember watching, for example, I think there was a sort of big cricket tournament in the summer of 2020. And I remember watching about how they'd sort of quarantined the English cricketers so then they could go and carry on playing together. And there was so much creativity. Now, you know, you know, I'm a telly addict, Barney, and now I'm watching TV dramas and you can see it's all filmed during COVID. All the scenes are outside and there was so much filming and building work that went on during COVID. And yet we shut our schools and schools around the country, not necessarily in London, have playing grounds or fields around them or there were church halls not 
being used. There were gyms which weren't allowed to open, sports centres. All of these places could have been used as spaces with the doors open, particularly in the summers, for children to be educated. And there just didn't seem to be that creativity there. Mm. But as as Molly rightly pointed out, we had plans for a viral pandemic and they, they weren't used. It seemed a bit like the government were more keen to get pubs reopened than Mm. schools at one point, which kind of says something about priorities doesn't it yeah i think i think it boils down to the priority of of where we we see children in society in the uk and whilst we don't think we're still at sort of the stage of children should be seen and not heard we vilify teenagers we had those terrible sort of pictures of an old person dying of covid on a public health campaign and it said something like don't infect granny you know we, oh, we yeah. vilify children we call them super spread We don't, unfortunately, promote and celebrate education and children's early life as much as we should. And that's really what what all of this illustrates. Well, I do not doubt this is a subject that we're going to continue to talk about. If you want to read about all the latest health news, please do so in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday. There won't be a Mail on Sunday on Christmas Day, obviously, but we'll be back on the 1st of January, as ever, in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or on the Mail app. Thank you once again for dropping in and joining me while Eve is on holiday, much deserved. And about all I need to do now is wish our listeners a very Merry Christmas. See you next year. Goodbye. Goodbye.